Thanks, Pastor Tommy. It's so good to be with you all here tonight. Let me just uh, clarify something because some of you might want to give via text. Use the word guest, G-U-E-S-T, if you're using text giving tonight. Uh, because if you use the word missions, that may go to faith promises and we want all the money that's coming in tonight for our guests to go to them. So I encourage you to use the word guest as you use text giving. You can use the envelopes in the chair pocket in front of you if you are writing a check or designating cash and we encourage you to do that. But if you're text giving, use the word guest. Do I need to move my microphone, Steve? Or Okay, all right. Um, it's geared toward Pastor Stephen's voice. That's why it's booming like that. It's not used to my little mouse voice. So um, it, it's a privilege to be here tonight. I was scheduled to start this series on August the 7th, two weeks ago. But as you know, the Lord had other plans for me and my family. And uh, my dad graduated to heaven. And you know what? Heaven is not a consolation prize. Heaven is the goal. Heaven is where all of us want to be. And we're longing to go there and be with our king. And he just beat us there. That's all there is to it. Um, many of you have asked how we're doing. We're doing as good as we can, having lost a, a precious loved one unexpectedly. Uh, but I just want to again say thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your cards, your phone calls, your texts. I told someone the other day with all the help I've been offered... I could have built a home, planted three churches, fed the poor in our community, taken the gospel to the farthest reaches of the earth and still had stuff left over. And you guys are just amazing, just absolutely amazing. So I just want to say thank you for that. Um, let me set us up for where we're going for the next three weeks. Pastor was gracious enough. I had four weeks planned, but he's going to give me one of his weeks in September to finish my series. And he preached for me last Wednesday because I just wasn't ready. Uh, I, my messages were ready, but I, me, I wasn't ready. So I'm so thankful for that uh, grace extended to me. But for the next three weeks, I want us to look at something that I think will revolutionize our lives as Christians. And it will revolution our, revolutionize our lives as a church family. And that's learning to become a people of one thing. Learning to become a people of one thing. Now you might say, well, what in the world does that mean? I'm glad you asked that. I'm going to explain what that means. Um, did you know that the word priorities that we use so flippantly and so casually in our conversation today and in our language was never pluralized until the Industrial Revolution, when things began to be done by machines and there were, was multitasking and the word priority was used because there was only one priority, not many priorities. Because guess what? You can't have many priorities. You won't have any priorities if you have many priorities. Um, so I want to encourage us to think along these lines of the word priority, one Thing. And becoming a people of one thing means that our focus, our direction, our energy, our pursuit cannot be on what I think is best or what everyone else thinks is best for me. It has to be on who God is and what he thinks is best for my life. 
And so that's what I want us to focus on for the next three weeks. And I want us to look at three biblical narratives and illustrations in the life of David, in the life of Paul, and in the life of Mary of Bethany to help us understand what it means to become a person of one thing. And if each of us get it right in our own individual lives, then corporately we'll become a people of one thing because there'll be one priority. And you can guess what that is. It's Jesus. Jesus is the priority. So many times we think of a cause or a activity or a set of rules or a system as a priority, but it's not. It's a person. The priority is a person and his name is Jesus. For most of us, there are options all around us because of this. Our tendency is to collect experiences, but never devote ourselves to one thing. We just become a collector of experiences. We do this as Christians. Uh, we, we don't just point the finger at the world and say, look at their distractedness. We have to point the finger at us and say, we do this. We, we do this by going to hear the best teaching and reading the best books and trying out this church or that church or this ministry and that ministry. And, and it, we just get flooded with stuff. Just as the world does, we can so easily succumb to that in the life of following Christ. But God designed and created us to cultivate a heart of unwavering devotion for him. Unwavering devotion for him. So over the next four weeks, I want us to refocus on God's desire for us to become a person of one thing and in doing so, become a people of one thing. Let's look at Matthew 6.33 tonight. This is kind of our theme scripture, uh, these two passages in Matthew for the next three weeks. And we'll, we'll break it down with those illustrative passages in other parts of the Bible. But this is our launching pad each night as we come together to, to learn how to be a people of one thing. Matthew 6.33, you probably memorized this as a child. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness... And all these things will be given to you as well. I think many of us have sought first all these things. And guess what? We're back to priorities, not one priority. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, he didn't even wait. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Can I just offer that to us as a working definition of what a person of one thing looks like? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. The central truth, and we'll restate this every week just to remind us, but God wants us to love him first and foremost with all of our hearts. He desires for us to become a people of one thing. Now, in order for us to do that, we have to ask ourselves the right questions. And don't worry, we're going to be out on time. Many of us ask this question. What's the minimum that's required of me? What can I get by with? 
We do that in our marriage. We do that in our work. We do that in our finances. We do that sometimes in ministry. What's the least I can do to just get by and say I did it? But that's the wrong question to ask. Because what that tells me, if I'm asking that question, it tells me that I don't have a priority. I have too many priorities. And things are out of balance. The question we need to ask ourselves is this. What is the very most I can give? I want to give it all. Um, I'll never forget my dad teaching me something very important. He said, if you ever do anything, do it as unto the Lord and with all your heart. And I was like, that's good, Dad. He said, yeah, that's the Bible. That's not me. That's the Bible. But in a job, in a relationship, in an activity, anything we put our hand to, we need to do it to the glory of God. We need to do it with excellence. We need to give it all of our energy. And we need to do our best. Because that's what someone who has an unwavering heart of devotion does. That's how someone who is head over heels in love responds to the person they're pursuing. It's an unwavering devotion. And the Lord wants to bring us back to that place. So we're not asking ourselves, what can I get by with? We're asking ourselves, what is the very most I can give? I want to give it all. And guess what? When we, when we begin to live this way, <laughs> it provokes thought, discussion, opinions, and comments from those who choose not to live this way. Oh, well, you're out of balance. You're only pursuing God? What about this? What about that? It stirs up conversations because there are many more people not living as a person of one thing than there are who are pursuing God and God alone. And they'll call it out of balance. But again, I want to point us back to Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So let's look at the picture that we see in scripture tonight in 2 Samuel 23 of David's mighty men. You can read it right there in your notes. I'm going to read it from my Bible from the NIV version. I'm going to start with verse 8. So I'm going to be a few verses till you catch up with me in verse 13. These are the names of David's mighty men. Joshib, Beshebeth, a Tekemanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodai, the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. Verse 11 goes on to say, Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought about a great victory. During the harvest time, three of the 30 chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well 
near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. He said, is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. You have to understand at this time, David had been anointed king, but he was not yet on the throne. And King Saul was chasing him from cave to cave. And David is fleeing this evil pursuit. And during his flight from place to place and cave to cave, David wandered in the wilderness for about seven years as about 3,000 men hunted him down to take him out. Now about 600 men joined David and they made the cave of Adullam their headquarters. And the Philistines were defeating the nation of Israel and had just captured David's hometown Bethlehem. And it was probably late one night and David was likely not too happy at the fact that the Philistines had captured Bethlehem. And he's probably reminiscing and thinking, I'm tired of running. It's hot. I'm in a cave with a bunch of men. It's sweaty. I'm thirsty. Boy, it would be great to have a drink from the well in Bethlehem. Oh, that somebody would make that happen. Now, I can't imagine being such a person as to say, well, yeah, I'll risk my life for a glass of water. Uh, maybe a gold bar or a four-carat diamond or a Mercedes-Benz, something like that. I might risk my life for that. But for a cup of water, I'm not sure I'd risk my life for that. But you have to understand, there was a relationship element going on that we don't see right away until we peel back the layers and understand why these men took the courage and did what they did to please their king. And that's going to preach because I'm about to preach it in a minute. But you kind of catch the storyline here. They were sold out to David. They had given them, him, their lives, their allegiance. They had given him their all. And they said, we want David to be king. He's already been anointed as king. We know it's coming. We don't know when it's coming, but we know it's coming. And we want to do everything in our power to see this happen because this is God's plan, God's will. And you have to understand, they came to David. You'll see there in point one under letter B, distressed, discontented, and in debt. So they were a, they were a rowdy bunch. <laughs> they didn't come... Uh, with, with high honors. They didn't come with accolades and esteem. They came when they were at their worst and lowest. And David took them in. They had nothing to live for. But David gave them a vision and a cause and he trained them. And not only did he make them an army, but he made them a family. And can I just encourage you? I believe that the church is to be an army. I think that's important because we are to warfare against the forces of darkness. We are to take back ground that the enemy stole. And we are to take by force 
what the enemy has said, this is mine and I'm not going to give it up. And the Lord gives us the courage and the ability to do that. But can I take it a step further? We're not just an army. It can't stop there. We're not just a bunch of mindless soldiers being told, go here, do this, do that. And we're just snapping, yes, sir. Yes, there is a part of that to the Christian walk. But can I point us to the family element? I love what Pastor Darren teaches our school leadership students. We don't fight with family. We fight for family. And that's what these men did. They weren't just fighting for a king. They were fighting for a dad who took them in when no one else did. And they were willing to risk their lives because David gave them vision and a cause. What was the vision? The Lord's appointed me as king. And I need you to help me to live that out to the best of my ability as God enables it. And he gave them a cause. Keep me alive until the time comes. So he trained them, made them an army, but he, more importantly, I think, made them a family. David also shared his heart with them. He didn't just bark out orders. I believe he shared his heart with them. And he said, this is what we're going to do. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is who God has called us to be. And we want to serve him and fulfill his will. So he shared heart with them and their hearts because of that were ennobled and encouraged. They also saw the beauty of who David was. They saw his godliness as he lived before them. He had every chance to take King Saul out. I mean, we read about it all through Samuel. He even, when, when Saul was relieving himself in a cave, he even went and cut off the corner of his robe. He could have taken him out right there. But what did he do? He honored who was in authority until God said, it's time. And so he modeled that before his troops. So they saw his godliness. They saw the beauty of the favor of God upon his life. Why? He was still alive. He was still breathing. God's hand was upon him to protect him. In essence, they became men of one thing. Willing to live courageously because of their burning love for David. And some people might say, well, that's a misplaced love. That's not balanced. But I love what David did. He did the best thing he could have ever done with the water that was presented him from the well in Bethlehem. He realized the cost that was at stake. I, I can even imagine David going, guys, you could have gotten killed. Your wives would have been all over me for not bringing you back alive. Why in the world did you put your life on the line to bring me a cup of water? But I can imagine those soldiers talking back and say, saying to David, we, we lost our lives when we started following you. We, we gave that up a long time ago. They had already made that commitment to follow David to the nth degree. And so this was nothing for them to go and please their king. And I love the fact that they became men of one thing, willing to live courageously because of their burning love for him. I think it's important to live as a person of one thing and people of one thing because it just kind of cuts through all the junk in life and it gets us back to what's important. Uh, when you lose a loved one, and yeah, it's still kind of fresh and maybe it's too soon to even say this, but when you lose a loved one, you start to think about what's important. It's not all this 
fluffy stuff out here that's so superficial. It's the people closest to you. It's the, the task at hand. It's the mission God's given you. It's the call of God on your life. Those are the things that rise to the surface and are of importance. And, and we tend to see those things a little bit more clearly when something happens to catch our attention. And I just want to thank the Lord for getting my attention and for reminding me of what is important. I want to focus on these life lessons here because I think this will help us take the story of this heroic act of these men who loved their king and help us to apply it to our lives because it's one thing to talk about someone else's courage, someone else's willingness to sacrifice. And then David's response was what? He, he offered it to the Lord. He just poured it out and said, Lord, this is yours. I can't drink this. Men's blood were on the line. This is too precious for me to partake of. And, and I think we've got to capture not only the willingness to love Jesus the way these men love David, but we've got to also be willing to worship God when these gifts are presented to us in our journey. So our Christian life lessons, and we'll wrap up with this. Letter A, we must allow our hearts to be captivated by our God. When your heart and my heart is conquered by the one who is fascinating, then no other captivation will satisfy. Um, I can honestly tell you in this moment in time, right now, with every fiber of my being, that on my 20th anniversary with my bride, Angela Smith, I am more captivated by her now than I have ever been. And I think that is just a small picture and mirror image of what God wants us to understand about our love for him and our service to him and our commitment to him. Um, you know, most people would be out on a date tonight, but hey, we're in church on our 20th anniversary. I'm so thankful for that. And I love you, sweetheart. I'm glad you're here and I celebrate with you. But when you are fascinated by the one thing, nothing else will satisfy. There's no one else who can satisfy my longing like the Lord can. That can satisfy my desires like the Lord can. That can satisfy the ability to, to just live life to the fullest. And the Lord can only supply that. Not only do we need to allow our hearts to be captivated by our God, but... The Lord desires people who go beyond just the minimum requirements. He's looking, and I preached about this uh, last year, He's looking for people who are all in. Not just half-hearted, not just part-time. He searches for lives of lavish commitment. And I believe the Lord is starting to teach us as a church what lavishing love on Him and on others looks like. You know that family we were talking about? This is a great place to learn how to lavish love on others. Because guess what? If we can do it here, it's going to make a difference out there. I love what you said tonight, Lindy. Why are y'all doing this? You're lavishing love on a people who need what you're giving them. And they, they don't understand it. They're like, why is this happening? And then we can express the hope behind why we're offering the love we get. Because folks, if we don't practice it in here, we're not going to do a good job out there. 
And the Bible expressly says, plainly says, they, they will know we are Christians by our love for one another. So this is where we practice in the family. And guess what? If you want to break it on down on a smaller scale, we practice at home. So we love our wives and our husbands and our children. We learn that love relationship there. And then it's expressed and broadened in the church realm. And we're learning and practicing to love each other. And then it can go out from here to the community. And that's what we desire. We want the love of Jesus to be expressed and communicated so our goal is to love the Lord and to desire Him beyond anything else and not just do the minimum requirements. We must allow our hearts to be captivated by God. How do we do that? Let's look at those five things there. You pursue Him and Him alone. You and I will not allow ourselves to be distracted by anything less. Your hunger and my hunger will become fixed on a single source. You and I will not be able to go back to what used to bring us satisfaction. That's when you know it's real. That's when you know it is true. That's when you know the proof is in that. You don't go back to the other junk that you used to have and do. Because Jesus is enough. His presence is all you want. His pleasure is all you desire. Seeing Him light up when he thinks of you. That's the pursuit that we have. And secondary pleasures begin to fade away. Some of you, I just, I sense it in my spirit. Some of you are thinking to yourself, you know, I, I just can't watch TV like I used to. Or I just, I don't, I just don't go to the movies like I used to. Or I, I just don't play golf as much as I used to like to. Or I, and, and you know, some of you, you think you're getting old. And maybe. We're all getting old. I mean, that's a general point, okay? But can I just say that I think the things and cares of this world are not as appealing to us as they used to be? And I believe the Lord is turning the tide in our hearts and He's causing us to learn to love Him first and foremost. And then all the secondary stuff just begins to fade in the background. It doesn't matter anymore. Now, there's nothing wrong with television. If you're watching the right shows, there's nothing wrong with movies. If you're watching the right things, there's nothing wrong with playing golf except being out on Sunday and not coming to church playing golf. There's nothing wrong with it. But do you understand what I'm saying? Those are activities that we enjoy, but Jesus is the one that should captivate our hearts. And as that happens, those things begin to fade into the background. So I want to tell you, you're not getting old. Your desires are changing. The Lord is increasing your desire for him and lessening your desire for anything else that you thought used to satisfy you. That, guys, I'm just going to be straight up with you. That's why you can't go to those websites you used to go to anymore because they just don't satisfy you anymore. That's why you can't go to the bar and hang out with your work buddies after work. I know you just got a Coke. That's fine. But it's just not the same as it used to be. You're, you're not, your hunger's not being met by being in those places that used to make you feel cool or accepted or a part of a group or doesn't matter anymore. God's turning your heart. He's growing me and you up. He's maturing us to become the men and women of God that he's always planned for us to be. 
And that's part of the, the growing process. And I'm so excited about that. Let her see our goal is to stand before him on the last day and offer ourselves to him just as these three mighty men offered the water to King David at the potential expense of their lives. On the last day when I stand before the Lord, I want to be able to say, I've given you my all. I've given you my time. I've given you my talent. I've given you my treasure. I've given you my testimony. Jesus, I've given you everything I can possibly give you because you're worthy, you desire it, and you deserve it. That, that will be the best day of our lives other than the moment when Jesus saved us from our sin and filled us with his spirit and gave us a destiny and a plan to be fulfilled. When we can say, I lay it all at your feet, Lord. It's all yours. It all belongs to you. That's our goal. So my question to you tonight is simple. How will you respond to Jesus Christ, your king? I love the fact that, Josh, you talked about we serve a big king. I love that. How will we respond to Jesus Christ, our big king? With the minimum required? We know what that is. Asking Jesus to forgive our sins. We're going to heaven. But please don't stop there. There is so much more than that. That's enough. But let me tell you, there's so much more to experience, to know, to learn, and to grow in, in our relationship with God. So don't stop with the minimum required of you. Don't stop with what you can get by with. Go all the way with extravagance and costly love. And that's what I want us to talk about for the next couple of weeks. So I want to pray for you before we go tonight. You can stand with me and we'll be dismissed in just a moment. And I'm going to ask our altar teams if they'd come up tonight, those that are able to serve and willing to serve tonight. But if you'll just bow your head with me, I just want to ask the Lord to begin to speak to our hearts. Father, this is such a simple message. It's a profound story in your word. So thankful for David. I'm so thankful for his mighty men. I'm so thankful that he took time to ennoble them, share his heart, cast vision, show them love that they didn't have, maybe from an earthly father or from a king from the town or country they were from. But David connected heart with them and they were willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice just to answer a simple request for a cup of water. Lord, you're not here to beat us down with guilt. You're not here to make us feel like worms. You're just tugging at our heart. And you're saying, what are you willing to do for me? What are you willing to be for me? What are you willing to give to me? And some of us, you're asking, what were you willing to give up for me? Lord, I can't answer that question for anyone else but myself. But Lord, as you are speaking to our hearts tonight, as you are asking us and provoking thought to really take a good look at where we're at, what we're doing, how we're living,
Father, would you create in us a desire to be a people of one thing? Would you allow that word priority to resonate in our heart when we wake up in the morning and when we go to bed? Would you, would you just haunt us, lovingly haunt us with that word priority and draw us into your presence? Draw us into a life of being captivated by your beauty. Draw us in to a place of finding our satisfaction in you and in you alone. Lord, thank you that other things, secondary pleasures are starting to fade into the background. And Lord, some of us just need to get some things right with you. And Lord, I thank you that repentance is good news. I love what Pastor Corey talked about. Repentance is good news. That, that's, that's, where, that's a lifestyle. That, that's not a one-time thing. That's a lifestyle of keeping short accounts with you. Just as David did when, when he sinned with Bathsheba. Lord, you helped him to correct that. You helped him to come clean. You helped him to call sin what you said it was. And not soften it and make it something it wasn't. Lord, if we need to do business with you on that level, I'm so thankful that you're here tonight with open arms to help us and to walk us through that process. Lord, increase our hunger for you. The one thing, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because that's our desire. And Lord, we may not be willing, but we're willing to be willing. And you can work with that all day long. So we thank you for that. Hear our prayers tonight. Speak your life over us. Draw us in close, we ask. In the strong and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The altars are open if you'd like prayer tonight. If you need to go, it's 829. I'm letting you out a minute early. Go get your kids. We love you. We'll see you Sunday. Lord willing, have a great rest of the week.